Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined, as always, by assistant editor Andrew Keats. Hello, Andy. Scott, how are I'm, we? I'm very well, thank you. Feeling really, it's a nice day. I've, I've seen breezes of normality, whiffs of, more, of, of normality. It's, it's really helping my mental health. And Sarah Libby, managing editor. Hello. Hello. Have you felt any breezes of normality? No, quite the opposite. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. Coming up on the show today, San Diego Unified has announced that it will announce the next phase of reopening schools. We'll talk about how phase one has gone and some of the inequities we're worried about there, always inequities. And continuing with the youth theme, we've got a new story about sports and how youth Sports is adapting and, of course, creating inequities. There are a lot of things that caught our attention with school access and the youths this week, so we will talk of the youths. Plus, as we gear up the election, which is just well, not even two weeks, we're talking like 10 days or something, right? 11 days away. We'll talk about Measure E. It's about the height limit in the Midway Pacific Highway area. And the pivotal race for County Board of Supervisors District 3, our Jesse Marks has done a couple of stories about what the Democrats would do if they win control of the Board of Supervisors or what the Republicans will do. But first, it is a tradition that you now know and love. Voice of San Diego's podcast election draft returns next week. That'll be our last podcast before Election Day. So make sure you've picked your races so we can compare uh, be sure you're subscribed or following this podcast wherever you listen so you do not miss it. Uh, you, uh, you're you going to start figuring out your draft picks, Andy? Yeah, I'm put, putting together my draft board, huddling with Mel Kuyper, and uh, get, you know, getting all of our Are we going to do a, a White done. Claw Laced um, Election Night podcast? I don't see why not. Yeah, absolutely. With one important <laughs> contingency that... Uh, if you know, what? Just, if the nightmare scenario were to take place at the national level, you can go ahead and <laughs> count on not hearing from us. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see what happens with everything. There's a lot of state propositions. I'll be looking right away at Prop 15, Prop 22, Measure E, of course, the mayor's race, a lot of different ones to choose from. We're including measures in our draft, right, guys? Oh, that's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. There's some good yeah. there's some good measures to to be considering there. All right, let's talk about the youth. A couple weeks ago, San Diego Unified School District, second largest school district in the state of California, and of course the largest in San Diego County. It has been closed since Tom Hanks Day back in March. Uh, at least in person, uh, campuses have been closed. Last two weeks ago or so, they opened for phase one of in-person instruction. This is basically a appointment-based special needs. So if your child has special needs and was falling really far behind 
And if the school identified them as somebody who is falling behind, it's not something you could apply for, then you might have gotten an invitation to get some appointment-based services on campus in addition to the online education that was happening. That has been in place for now almost two weeks. Uh, our Will Huntsbury did a story about how it was entirely up to the to the educators whether they wanted to participate in this or not, and a lot of them, turns out, didn't. He talked to uh, Donis Coronel. She's the executive director of the local principals union, and she told Will that uh, she talked to 25 to 30 elementary school principals, and at least half of them said they had maybe one teacher or zero coming back. I know at some schools, uh, the only things that were happening in person were actual special needs assessments, not actual instruction or anything like that. And of course, uh, yet another area where there's some inequities brewing. Did I summarize that enough, uh, um, Sarah? I think so. And uh, like you identified this big irony of it, which is that they structured it in a way to try and bring people back and address you know, educational inequities that were happening because of distance learning. And they ended up opening up this new inequity and in that it's available to some students um, who happen to attend schools where teachers have decided to come back and not to others, you know, at schools where there's no one there. Yeah. And it just sort of furthers a lot of this experience we're watching. We see private schools uh, that are having in-person services. Uh, Poway Unified has been open. San Dieguito. Uh, you, is San Dieguito the best name, by the way? So good. San Dieguito, just little San Diego. Uh, they uh, they open. There's a lot of uh, wealthier areas that have school access and a lot of places that don't. Um, and so, yeah, we you know we're trying to round that up. Uh, they did want to use the phase one not just to address the inequities, but also to be able to test and prove that they can have people on campuses and that they would have data back. And so it's that data that they want to be analyzing now to see if it's possible to move to phase two. And today, Thursday, we got an indication of what phase two may look like. And the district announced that it would announce next week on Tuesday, I guess that's Tuesday, the 27th of October, when they may move to phase two. Now, phase two would be really significant. I was actually kind of surprised at how big it would be. Um, uh, Pre-K to fifth graders would be able to go back four days a week, half days, five days. The fifth day, they would stay at home. And this is the big one uh, in my eyes. Uh, secondary 6th through 12th grade students would be able to go back to high school and middle schools two days a week. Uh, our, uh, our My cousin Lex would be stoked about that. Um, we are not sure, though, when, of course, again, they announced that they would announce. And there was one crucial part of the announcement. They said, we're going to wait for the numbers to come out on Tuesday uh, from the county public health officials about where we're at with the virus. And, of course, we've been teetering on that purple level uh, for a while, and I'm, I'm sure if we go into purple, they'll probably say something about how we're not going to phase two. Well, it seems like if the purple tier is indicative of what we can do, it, w it would, would have to be the case, right? You'd yeah, I don't uh, – I, I, That's there's only one reason to wait till Tuesday, and it's for that mm -hmm. determination, um, and if that – 
if they want to wait to get that determination, that's what they're waiting for. But, um, you know, of course, there's a lot of things that still have to happen. They may identify a date, but they, they haven't made a deal with the teachers union. And the teachers union has a lot of the leverage here. Um, I, I wouldn't call what they're doing a work stoppage as much as they are the ones who are going to have the uh, the influence to decide whether they feel comfortable going back to school or not. And if they do not want to, they have the power not to. And it's, it's very Wouldn't simple. Wouldn't it be fair to assume, though, that there, those conversations have probably happened? I, I mean, I can't imagine that the district leadership would get out in front with a, an announcement that they're going to have to then sell to the school, to the teachers union. You can't. You can't really imagine that. <laughs> Actually, I think it's exactly what happened with phase one. Remember, they said that people were going to come back September, at the end of September, and then they said, uh, we never actually said, we're, we we got it wrong. We're not going to go back. We're, we have to decide when it's safe to go back. Well, it turns out they had gotten ahead of their skis. They announced that before they had the deal with the teachers union, and so... Uh, they ended up uh, having to. I guess it got delayed about a week or two uh, before they could do it because because of that very thing. So I think they might have learned not, and I'm sure they probably had conversations, but I don't know. I, they don't let me in on those. That's for sure. No. I'm interested in how parents uh, react to this, you know, model that's been laid out. Um, obviously, everybody. Scott, I think you've maybe talked about this once or twice over the last six months, are interested in schools opening and in-person learning happening. Um, I feel like I heard you mention that once, maybe. Um, it's, it's been on the side. Yeah, it's been something I thought so about. So presumably, yeah. like, because side... you won't shut up about it. Yeah, thank you for explaining <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I got it. Presumably, like some school and some in-person instruction is better than none, and it's probably a relief to parents and kids to be able to go back a little bit or to go back a couple days. But in this model where you're in school some of the time and out of school some of the time, you would still, I assume, need childcare on those other days, which means, you know, if you're participating yeah. in a pod or something like that, you're broadening your, ex you're exposed to your classmates in the school and you're exposed to your pod mates outside of school and you're kind of mixing those two together. So if the whole point is to minimize exposure by only having kids go to school one or two days, it seems like you could, there's an argument you're actually doing the opposite of that. Yeah, I, I think uh, that was my wife's first reaction to this. Like, we're both uh, really excited to see maybe some movement and progress. But her first reaction was like, what do I do with the rest of the day? You know, I mean, uh, and and what will probably, I think, be an interesting accompaniment to this is what you do on normal half days in San Diego Unified. Most of us let our kids go to the YMCA aftercare program uh, on those days. So remember, every normal school week in San Diego Unified, there's one day that's a half day at elementary schools. And and that's when the YMCA goes and picks them up and spends the next four hours with it. You didn't know that, did you, Andy? I did not know that. Yeah, it's a it's it's something you find out the first week. You're like, oh, they don't go to school all day every day, it turns out. 
And so I was not counting on that. My kid's <laughs> yeah. going to be going to school sometime soon. That wasn't part of the plan. No, okay, good it, to know. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think, do they allow the why to do those programs that supplement that for a while? There's another big question. I will say I read the the most, the thing that made me feel the best about San Diego Unified's efforts through this that I've read in the last six months, and it was in La Jolla Light. Um, this guy... The COO of the of the San Diego Unified uh, is a guy named Drew Rollins. Uh, he's the chief operating officer. I I have never encountered Mr. Rollins before, but apparently he spoke at the La Jolla Cluster um, Parents Meeting, and he was great. Uh, based on this La Jolla Light reporting of what he did, he he talked about how it's all about cleaning the air. It's all about ventilation. They're going to use um, carbon dioxide monitoring to check whether the air is turning over uh, five times per hour in a room and, and thus is getting enough air exchange and ventilation. Uh, it, it's a first guy who seemed to really understand and articulate what they were going to do based on what they're learning from these scientists at, at UC San Diego and uh, and then proof that they're be that the that they're actually going to achieve you know this uh, ventilation as they as they hope to and how they can just demonstrate that in a way that teachers could literally check uh, and they could check these rooms. I, I just found it a really um, you know you don't see a lot of uh, a lot of that and they they got to get him out talk to every teacher possible every parent possible and and they might be able to get somewhere. All right. Well, there is a phase three and phase four. I'm not even letting myself uh, read the descriptions of those. Uh, those are, you know, four days a week, uh, four days a week for for high school kids. Uh, that would be really interesting to watch. But let's see if phase two happens at all before we get into that. There is another thing brewing. The UT's done some reporting, and then of course our Ashley McGlone did a story this week about youth sports. Uh, cities like. Yuma, Phoenix, Tucson are allowing competitions for youth sports. Here they are not allowed. So you can have practice. You can have, uh, um, you know, you can, like my daughter played in a softball team. They practiced a lot and they had scrimmages uh, that sure did look like uh, games, but you're not allowed to have official games. But they are allowed in Arizona. And so a lot of these really competitive youth sports leagues are carpooling, getting hotel rooms and going to Arizona with all the risks that that entail. And a lot of them are like, look, we're not de- denying the virus trouble. We just, you know, our kids want to play and we want to help them play. So let's go to Arizona. It's It was a kind of fascinating story, uh, Sarah, about the logistics of just what they're going through to make that work. Yeah, there's a few pretty wild pieces of it. Like one is that you're driving hundreds of miles or hundred miles. I have no real sense of how far away Arizona is, apparently, now that I'm saying it out loud. Um to play <laughs> sports teams um that are probably like a few miles away from you. Like Solana Beach is driving to Arizona to play a Del Mar team or whatever. Um so that's pretty weird. And then, you know, you mentioned carpooling, but I think actually they're they're not allowed to carpool and they're not allowed to share um, hotels. Right. And so it's, it, it's quite a burden on parents and families to have to do this all themselves. And there's not like a lot of sharing the, the costs or the time that it takes to get, 
your kids all the way to Arizona and back for the weekend. And so a lot of coaches and parents expressed worry that like the longer and longer this drives on, it's not going to be sustainable for all that many families to constantly be driving to Arizona to constantly be buying hotel rooms in Arizona, which apparently are quite spendy since the demand is there. So it's wild. Yeah. So, so you have even another area of inequity getting exacerbated where, you know, people who can afford that have the resources to do that, um, are going to literally get ahead, maybe get more training, more, um, more elite practice. Uh, and, and, you know, where there's a will, there's always going to be a way with some of these parents. Yeah. Andy, you were a, you were an elite youth athlete, right? Yes. <laughs> That's correct. Would you, would, would your parents have driven you to Arizona from here? Arizona's far. Yeah. It really, that's far. That's like the, the equivalent of like being driven to like Pittsburgh from Baltimore. Yeah. And it's well, maybe not Yuma. It, it, Phoenix is the equivalent of Pittsburgh, but, but Yuma, I guess, is much closer. Yeah. Well, when, remember when the fires were here in 2003, Micah Geary, who was running <laughs> for city attorney, he, he came up with a plan that we were all going to evacuate to Yuma. And he was really mad that we didn't. Like the entire city of San Diego evacuating the Yuma. In fact, it, he evacuated the Yuma on election night because he was so nervous about what was happening and he couldn't stand to watch it anymore. He went to Yuma. Okay. Maybe he just, <laughs> this guy just likes Yuma. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. I, just yeah. like, I'm trying to tell you, it's a it's, cool It's town. a really nice I, place. <laughs> I do that just to illustrate that Yuma has always, has been an outlet for some people apparently for a while. Uh, at the when you when you when in doubt, go to the Colorado River, I guess. All right, well, check out uh, Ashley's story at voiceofsandiego.org. There is a lot going on. It, Sarah, you found you got the best not school announcement, I think, this week. What was it like the Hilton or the Hyatt that was like, come stay with us, we'll take care of your kids, and you can go get like massages and we'll make sure they get a good education. Wink, wink, no problem. Yeah, I mean, we've been hearing for a long time hotels kind of marketing themselves as like staycation destinations, so that's not new. But I got this press release, um, I think it was the Hyatt, um, saying, you know, relax by the pool, get massages, but also we've arranged super educational field trips to the zoo and the harbor and whatnot, so we will take care of your kids because we know you have nowhere to send them. Um, yeah, it was it was the just to be clear, it was the Marriott Marquis downtown. So, uh, yeah, they it was Parents Day off, fall travel package now available. While the kids are away on field trips and learning, you can you can hang out and get a spa treatment and and relax. It sounded like heaven. Yeah, like it's, <laughs> it's not like, a no for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't. By no means do I begrudge them their the marketing chops there. But, uh, boy, not the sign of a healthy society. <laughs> things, aren't, things aren't going well when that's hitting your mailbox. <laughs> okay, so one of the races we've talked about a lot is the race for District 3 of the County Board of Supervisors. There's five soups who represent different parts of San Diego County, not the city, the whole county. 
And it could go either way. District 1's definitely going to get a Republican. I mean, a Democrat. There's two Democrats running in that seat. District 2 is definitely going to get a Republican. There's two Republicans running for that seat. But District 3 has an incumbent Republican and a very serious, well-funded challenger from the left, Democrat, uh, Tara Lawson-Reamer. So incumbent Kristen Gaspar is fighting for her seat there. And depending on how this race turns out, I cannot overemphasize how different the county governance could be based on which direction this goes. So let's say Kristen Gaspar wins, retains her seat. Uh, Somebody like Steve Voss or Joel Anderson wins in District 2, the Republican. And then uh, there's, you know, essentially at that point, there's three Republicans in charge. But by the way, three much more movement conservative, uh, pretty, I think, significantly more conservative than the existing uh, Republicans that are on the board who are termed out. And so I think you have a much more actually conservative board of supervisors than you've than we've seen maybe ever on the board of supervisors. But if it goes the other way, you have uh, Democrat Nathan Fletcher, who's already there, uh, either Ben Weso or Nora Vargas from District 1, the South Bay. And then you have a very progressive liberal, um, Tara Lawson-Reamer, who uh, you you end up having by far uh, the most progressive um, left of center board of supervisors we've seen. So it's incredible how much could change based on that. Yeah, to like to compare it to the city council, like the the outcome of the city council races here, even the ones that are uh, Republican versus Democrat aren't going to change the entire like shape and constitution of the way the city council behaves. It, it, they represent marginal changes either way, right? The the Democrats are going to have a majority either way. They're going to have a, a a large majority either way, and so it's it's really tweaking at the edges where like you, you have directionally completely different situations in, in uh, at stake here in these county supervisor elections. And it's not just like the political direction, which as you mentioned is like wild, the swings that it could take, but just like having a board filled with such big, intense personalities would be a lot different than it has been. You know, we're like most people don't know what the board does and don't, couldn't name their supervisor um, or or any of that, and and to just have it be like a much more outspoken and aggressive um, entity filled with like wild personalities would be a big change on its own. Yeah, like to take one very small example, like the Democrats have already sort of said, I think that the convention, the longstanding convention, that the chairmanship of the board of supervisors rotates on a year to year basis. That it's not it's not a position that you run for. It's not a it, it's it's it just kind of moves around like a um, you know like a like like an Annie in a poker game, and um, I think that's gone no matter what happens in these elections. I yeah. think e- even if the Republicans are going to win, I don't I don't anticipate Kristen Gaspar, uh, Joel Anderson, and Jim Desmond. Being like, well, it's Nathan Fletcher's turn to be the chairman of the board. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll just we'll just take his lead, you know. Or, or and after that, it's Nora Vargas's turn, you know. Like, I, I just, I, I think that that sort of uh, 
old old practice, and that's just one example of, of the board of supervisors is in the past, regardless. And so Jesse Marks on our team, he did a uh, two stories: one about what the Democrats would do if they took over, and then one about what the new Republicans would do if they sort of keep it in Republican hands. And if I if I Sarah to were to break down in the most simple form what he found, it's that. It would be about spending. The Democrats want to spend billions of dollars to address behavioral health, homelessness. And there is probably a willingness to spend from the Republicans on these issues as well. But they're going to be far more uh, reserved and, and, and they're going to have much different priority for how that spending goes, probably focus more on treatment as opposed to actual housing, uh, things like that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, kind of Ironically, the one thing that they said they they don't want to pull back on is police spending. So they aren't, you know, amenable to any calls to change um, police budgets uh, like the sheriff's office. So they're fiscally conservative, except when it comes to that. I think I guess or or the DA's office, which but I, and you know and that but that is one of the major things that the county board of supervisors does mm-hmm. is they set the budget for the sheriff and the and the district attorney's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're going to have some major decisions to make about outsourcing things like health care for the jail system. Uh, obviously, a more conservative board's going to be way more into that. I, I, one thing I'm interested in, uh, I'd be interested in your take, is how it could be different versus if you have Steve Voss uh, as the Republican from District 2, the East County seat, versus former state senator Joel Anderson. So Voss is the Poway mayor. He's kind of more of an establishment figure. Kevin Faulkner supports him. The uh, incumbent uh, county supervisor, Diane Jacobs, supports him heavily. Uh, Joel Anderson, much more of uh, an ideological uh, firebrand, but also has been known to work with people like Nathan Fletcher in the past, has this whole like bipartisan you know, thing that he tries, this brand that he tries to peddle. So uh, it it could be really interesting just to see which of those two comes out. I would, I, yeah, I just think it's like a variability. It's like the, the predictability of the seat changes. I think Steve Voss is, he's a conservative. There's, you know, there's no question that he's a conservative guy. Um, but he's like an institutional conservative, whereas Joel Anderson is, I, I think, just unpredictable. Um, he's also very conservative, probably to the right of Steve Voss. But I don't know that that like that's the biggest distinction as much as just there's no telling where he's going to be on anything or or what he might decide to do. Anderson, wasn't he the first local official, maybe the first in California to endorse Trump? Yes, I think, he was uh, very, very early no. on. Well, oh, maybe I was thinking of Congress was 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 Duncan Hunter. Well, Duncan Hunter, but I think even Hunter came after Anderson. No, um, he was okay. proudly like, "I'm yeah, I'm on this train. Let's do it." Yeah, but he's also like he hasn't he's he's partnered with like Lorena on a couple different yeah things. on multiple no, initiatives. In, in assembly, yeah, assemblywoman. Yeah, yeah, yeah on it's, diaper it's, initiatives, and he's partnered with Democrats on some. Um, privacy and surveillance issues during his time in the legislature. So I, yeah, he's absolutely a wild card. And then, and then Voss, when you ask Voss about this, they're both trying to appeal to liberals right now. And Voss is like, well, Hey, look, I'm endorsed by Diane Jacob and Nathan Fletcher has only got what he's gotten done in the County because of the support by 
Diane Jacobs. So, you know, hey, wink, wink, I'm with him. It was, it's a really interesting dynamic. I would also point to, to Steve Voss's role at Sandag, yeah. where like there's been this very heated, very uh, ideological left versus right fight on the Sandag board. And like Voss would never be mistaken as like a uh, Alejandro Sotolo Solis or Catherine Blakespear or uh, you know, uh, Georgette Gomez, uh, uh, like the actual progressive members of that board who have been pushing it to the left. But he has sort of tried to uh, like hold the water line on just how far outside of um, far outside of, of normality they can pe people can push things with protest votes and uh, um, walking away from votes as a like to, to try to deprive the board of a uh, quorum. Um, some of the things that went down on this fight over the uh, audit recently, he, he's like really played like a protectionist role about the like the institution itself. And I think that speaks to, to who he would be on this board, which is a conservative guy, but a conservative guy who's who's not going to let things go out of control. I can also just see uh, a board that includes Voss, Desmond, and Gaspar being fixated, almost like laser focus on Sandag and some of these transit issues. You know, they all three of them come from local government and have spent time on Sandag, whereas, you know, Joel Anderson's recent experiences at the state level, and I just don't know that that's his biggest priority or something that he's inclined to focus on. And so even just that alone would probably a big difference priority-wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Board of Supervisors, uh, of course, the county oversees a lot of things related to food assistance, air pollution, health care. Uh, and, you know, it, if, if this does come out either way, it could have a major influence on the future of transit. There's big ideas on the left uh, about transit, but they could easily be thwarted by how this goes at the county. District 3 County Supervisor Ace, if you're in the district, uh, you've got a big choice to make there. Uh, another big choice if you're within the city of San Diego is Measure E. Measure E is the ballot measure, of course, that would take the Midway neighborhood. We talked about it last week. Midway, Pacific Highway. A lot of people actually, I've, I've realized, don't know what we're talking about with Midway. It's talking about everywhere from the sports arena down through Midway and Sports Arena Drive uh, all the way to uh, the Pacific Highway area where it ends at Old Town. Does not include the uh, Marine Corps base, does not include the airport. But the areas right there around the, the the industrial areas and the the big sort of shopping center areas, those are what we're talking about here. And it would Measure E would say in those areas you can build more than thirty feet high. Now for forty years that area, along with most areas west of I five, have been under a very strict thirty foot height limit imposed by voters, so it can only be changed by voters. And um, and that's what Measure E is. There's a proposal, of course, for sports arena, but this affects the whole area. This week, our uh, environment reporter, Mackenzie Elmer, did a really interesting story about uh, one thing to think about here, and that is that in the world of climate change, it makes sense for more people to live 
by the coast. Uh, there is, you know, the temperatures are more steady, less need for either heat or cooling systems, and um, and it's just a, a healthier as far as uh, not needing transportation. Now that's a that that's a that. It's pretty provocative for some of my neighborhoods, neighbors on the coast, but I thought she did a good job explaining it. Yeah, and she talked to some experts who said that in addition to the the benefits of a temperate climate um, as it pertains to energy use, because with higher energy use, or excuse me, with higher or uh, more wild swings in temperature, you need to use more heat or more air conditioning. There's also just health effects of living in very hot climates um, and that they manifest in all the way down to like you know the the weight of a baby born um in the far eastern area and the the health of that baby um compared to being closer to the coast that it is it's just generally speaking healthier to live in temperate climates there's also though of course if you are worried about sea level rise you can't get too close to the sea um so it makes sense, but um, I thought the examination of that discussion, and that's a, a kind of a key part of this whole climate action plan that the city has gone on, and I don't think people quite understand. The city has committed to an not just an ideal, a literal law that more people have to live within these already built environments than uh, in exchange for allowing some some of the outer areas to stay undeveloped so that the the transportation expenses the the consequences of transportation are, are contained but then people are just organized better and that is a key part of the climate action plan and so a lot of folks especially political leaders that are committed to that i'm not sure that they've really committed though to what that implies and this is kind of a, a i thought it was just a good reminder of what that implies, and, and in many cases, it implies that they need to live, more people need to live in these areas. Yeah, and, you know, um, one rebuttal is that, well, if, if we turn this down, or excuse me, if we if we agree to make it uh, possible to build much more housing uh, near the coast, that wouldn't mean that developers were unable to build in the sprawling areas. So you're acting as though this is an, an either or situation, but it may just be both. Um, my response to that would be two things. One, um, even if it did end up being both, as the article demonstrates, it's just generally speaking healthier and better to allow more people to live near the coast. It's, it's better for those people's health and it's better for our overall energy use. And two, the, the city and county actually are, uh, whether they abide by it or, or not is something different, but they are ostensibly bound to limit growth in the sprawling backcountry areas. Um, and so there's an implied trade-off that, that restricting growth in those areas means allowing it in the already developed urban areas. And that happens in San Diego to be closer to the coast. Um, but so, so you know, there really actually is supposed to be a trade-off. It is supposed to be an either-or situation. Hmm. I've got an interesting question. When I was, I did a, an ask me anything on on local Reddit, San Diego's uh, subreddit about the election, and somebody asked what what happens if Measure E fails. And I thought that was a good actual exercise. If Measure E fails, the group that is sort of charged by the city with coming up with a plan for the sports arena areas, Brookfield development, 
Yeah, they won a bid, but they have not. There is no contract. Right. And the city council could later after this election or the next mayor could just redo that whole process. Their position in this was would probably be even more in doubt if this doesn't pass. And if it um, if it doesn't pass also, though, they or whoever wants to redevelop the sports arena land would probably want to come forward again in 2022 for some sort of ballot initiative and maybe just for the sports arena land. Remember, this is the whole this covers the whole area of the Midway um, Community Planning District. And you could very easily just come back and say, okay, fine, we won't do that. But what if we just do the sports arena land? Because we literally can't build another sports arena, even at the same height as the current one, without a difference uh, height limit, Uh, Sarah? So I think that's a good question. Um, And I understand why people are asking it. But isn't it also true that the Midway Community Plan envisions like thousands and thousands of units of new housing? And that also seemingly would rely on the height limit being lifted and so it's not you know everybody's asking well what's going to happen with the sports arena which fine um uh, again good question but like there are other implications as well right i don't know how you build thousands and thousands of new units um that are all three stories high right yeah i mean it would i i yeah it, it would almost certainly depress the number of new units you could produce there um and keep in mind the bidding, the company that won the bid, the bid to redevelop the sports arena didn't actually promise to rebuild the sports arena. So uh, <laughs> there's also that. <laughs> so sports arena in this context, I, I take to be more a description of a location than a uh, a, a building. Yeah, I, I think I guess isn't theoretically you could build that many homes, but it's just hard to imagine how they could be organized or or uh, profitable with such little land, right? Yeah, I think, uh, yes, I think that's correct. And I think that came up when they passed the community plan that it was ostensibly possible to reach those densities under three stories, but um, you know, you'd know, you end up having to basically have like micro units or you'd have to waive parking restrictions or um, you'd have to bi- basically build in all of the buildable areas with much less green space. Um, it's... It, I think it, it, while it is technically possible, I think it's safe to say that there would be many fewer new homes built in that area than allowed under that community plan if the height limit isn't increased. Got it. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded uh, in 110 West A Street, right across the street from 101 Ash Street, Andy and I have a weekly newsletter we think you'll like. It's called The Politics Report. It comes out every Saturday. It's full of great news and tidbits from the week. Sarah's newsletter is What We Learned This Week, a recap of the week and her fire take on it. Usually Voice of San Diego is uh, managed very well. At least his content is by her. and She has some great insights. Get those at VOSD.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief, Sarah Libby's Managing Editor, Andrew Keats' Assistant Editor, and this show was produced expertly by Nate John. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.